everything that moves. I don't care who it is. Let's go. Give me everything you got. Play fast, play hard. Let's beat these boys tonight in their house. It's party time. It's party time. Let's go. Welcome into another week of the Eagle Eye in the Sky football podcast. I'm your host, Fran Duffy, and joining me as he does each and every week, NFL film senior producer Greg Cosell. Greg, long time no see. It's uh, We're only, what now, 20 hours removed from last seeing each other? And I'm trying to think what percentage of those 20 hours I actually slept, and it's not a, it's not a very high percentage. No, it's not. I think I, I think I got about two and a half to three hours last night because, listen, just because it's a Monday night doesn't mean the uh, the week changes for the rest no, of us. No, no. I had to be back in the office, of course, at Films this morning at 6.30. So, uh, you know, after a while, I thought I was watching cartoons when I was watching the tape. <laughs> well, it's uh, while you brought up the tape, why don't we just jump right into it? Uh, the Eagles offense, obviously the first start for quarterback Mark Sanchez as an Eagle, his first start in the NFL since 2012. What did you think of Mark and his performance against Carolina? You know, I think, you know me, uh, Fran, I try to be as realistic as possible when I watch tape. I thought Sanchez played very well. I thought that there were two times in the game where he was forced to move in the pocket, and I thought he reset and threw the ball very well. That was a concern that he uh, I had because when he was in New York, he struggled with that. When he had to move, he often broke down and made poor decisions and bad throws. But again, being realistic— because this Panther team was 12-4 and four last year and won a division, there might be a sense that this is a good team. And unfortunately, it's, it's gone south for Carolina pretty quickly. This was not a good team. And, and all year long, because I've looked at every Carolina game, oh, going back the last three, four years, this year's team on defense in particular, they have a very bad combination. They have no pass rush and bad secondary play. That typically does not work out well. Not in the NFL. No. Probably not at any level. Probably not at any level. And Sanchez had a lot of quickly defined, relatively easy by NFL standard throws. Now, he hadn't played for a long time, so you say he made him, he, he threw with timing, he did what was necessary, he looked very good. Yeah, I thought, especially early on, there were a couple throws. I, I can remember early on a big completion of Brent Selleck. I want to say it was for 31 yards, where Kawan Short... Uh, got some penetration on yeah. Evan Mathis and came right into uh, yep. Sanchez's face. Maintained his back uh, downfield vision, sidestepped the pressure. Uh, you know, was able to deliver a throw. Was very patient. Didn't force the ball into coverage. Waited for Selleck to uncover and made a nice throw. I mean, th- yeah. those are plays like that where you kind of keep the offense moving and move the chains. Yeah, I, the throw that stood out to me, and there were a number, but I thought one in particular. It was third and long, deep in their own territory. I think it was on that 91-yard drive. And he threw it in the outside void in cover two to uh, Matthews. On the switch release. Correct. And yep. and that, that particular throw, it wasn't necessarily a throw that had to be drilled in there. But I just thought that's a throw that he made with confidence, throwing that ball in the outside void. And, yes, Matthews was wide open. Uh, but it's still not an easy throw to make. And he made that throw with confidence. Yeah, and you know what? And he helped create uh, get Matthews wide open because he threw that pump fake Correct. to hold that corner underneath. So yeah. Uh, really, that was a, that was one of those nice balls. That, that's true that that would stand out to me as well. Uh, obviously, the run game had some issues. I thought Luke yeah. Keekley probably had one of his best games that I saw from this season. Obviously, a lot of issues on that Carolina front seven, but Keekley is still a very good player. Uh, the way that he was able to diagnose some of those perimeter runs in particular and track uh, LeSean McCoy down was you know pretty impressive. Now, let me ask you this. Uh, you know, when I watched the game last night, because of the nature of the score, I wasn't focused – 
solely on the run game. But then when you watch the tape and you see that, you know, it stands out obviously a whole lot more. Any concerns on your part? This team this season, and, and we know what the record is, and obviously they're playing really good football as a team. As long as the teams keep punting to Darren Sproles, we'll all be happy. But at the end of the day, this run game has been very, very inconsistent this year. And even last night, what was it? McCoy, I think, was 12 for 19. I think it was maybe 20 for 37 total. They really couldn't run the ball. And and this is a defense that teams have run the ball against all season long. I would think that that was what Chip Kelly was referring to. Uh, we're, we're, we're recording this on Tuesday night. Chip Kelly held his day after press conference today, and he said that he was not happy with the offensive performance. Uh, and I got to think that he was pointing more so yes. towards the run game as opposed to the pass game. But going into the day... Uh, or going into Monday, rather, LaShawn McCoy had gone four straight games of rushing for 80 yards or more, and believe it or not, that was the first time he had done that in his career, uh, which was pretty That was pretty interesting. I didn't, you know, you didn't really realize that, but I know what you mean. It's been a very up and down. They haven't yes. been able to sustain it uh, week to week. And, and even in a couple of those games, those four games, the run game did look good, but even in some of those games where he got over 80, and, and I can't remember which ones, but... The, the run game did not have that sense of continuity to it. It was a couple of individual runs, but it hasn't had that sustaining element. I remember last year, every time they ran the ball, you felt like if they didn't get six yards, it seemed like it was a bad run. This year, there's been a lot fewer of those six-yard runs. I think part of that, obviously, has something to do with the with the offensive sure. line and some of the injuries there. We saw yesterday with... Uh, Evan Mathis coming back into the lineup, Matt Tobin getting his first start at right guard as opposed to starting on the left side. I would imagine that had something to do with it. Uh, look, I mean, and again, some of those individual runs, I think, and the coaches will kind of speak to this when they when they have their press conferences, a lot of these you know, things that they may not have a theme. It's kind of case-by-case right. case basis, play-by-play right. play situation. Uh, but you know there were some plays where Luke he- Luke Heakley sniffed you know the the misdirection inside zone cutback that we that we broke down on a Sproles eight yard touchdown right, in the first right. quarter. They ran that again, and Keekley like first step he saw what it was, traced it back and tackled it for a limited gain. Uh, a lot of plays like that where he was able to immediately read it. Him and Thomas Davis were able to flow to the ball and get a stop for minimal gain. Yeah, and and again, I, not that I was glad to hear Chip say he was disappointed, but it just makes me realize when you watch the tape, you see some things, and because of the nature of the score, I think there's a sense that everything is perfect, and you know coaches never think that way ever, and when there's issues, they want to address them, and keep in mind when Chip speaks to the media too, that's the team hears those press conferences too, and after a game like that, when he knows there's things to fix... He doesn't want them to think that we're playing great football because he knows they're not. Yeah, and no question. And to to your original question, it's funny because you know how it is in today's world. A lot, of, especially with what you and I do, a lot of people in the fantasy world will say, well, "What's wrong? What's wrong with Lashawn McCoy? Right. Is he ever going to get it turned around? You know, what's the deal?" And I've been telling people, "Look, don't panic. It's going to be fine." I think in the long run. This run game is going to be sure. fine. I think once the once these guys start to gel together on the offensive line, again we talked about the the two new starters up front this uh, this pa- past week. Once those guys start to kind of settle into their roles, I think we'll see uh, back to the 2013 form. Yeah, and and I, again, ultimately last night was really about Mark Sanchez's first start, and it's pretty interesting that I believe that was the first time in his career that he threw for over 300 yards, two touchdowns without turning the ball over. And he became the first quarterback since Jim Harbaugh in 1994 to lead his team to 45 points or more in his first start for the team. Do you know that? That's pretty good. Yeah. 
That's pretty good. No, he played well. And it'll it'll be very interesting. Again, just giving it a dose of reality, it'll be very interesting as they go forward and play some tougher defenses in some tougher environments. And it might be Green Bay this Sunday, especially if the weather is supposed to be what it might be. Uh, but last night, by NFL standards, was a relatively easy game for a quarterback. And you, as I said, you still have to make the throws, but there were not a lot of difficult throws in last night's game. Uh, switching gears here to the defensive side of the football, I mean, nine sacks, five mm. turnovers, another touchdown, uh, two, another touchdown from the special teams as well. The defense really has just been playing at a very high level throughout the season, and it really came to fruition last night yeah. with another top-shelf performance. Up front, this defensive line stopping the run and getting after the passer has just been uh, very, very impressive, especially last year because they thought they ca caught a lot of flack last year for not being able to get after the quarterback. And now you're seeing guys like Barwin and Graham and Curry and Cole all really take their turns getting to Cam Newton. Yeah, and I love what Bill Davis does. Tremendous versatility with how he utilizes players, moving them around in different spots, different pressure concepts. Uh, that's very hard to prepare for because don't forget teams – have to prepare for all those contingencies, and it's difficult. Now, again, being realistic, and this might sound like a controversial statement, but it's not, they were playing against a quarterback who right now is not seeing things clearly, is not reading coverage. And you know how you know one telltale sign that a quarterback's not seeing things clearly and not reading coverage is when his head goes back and forth in the pocket. Because when your head starts going from side to side, that means you're not getting a clear picture. And Cam Newton is not getting a clear picture right now. And he was standing in the pocket holding the ball. And the Eagles were able to take advantage of that. Connor Barwin, to me, we talked about this last night watching the game. He is as versatile right now an outside linebacker as there is in the league. He's not the best pass rushing outside linebacker in the league, although he's not a bad pass rusher, but he's not in the top two or three. But... Being used in, in different ways now, multiple ways, his pass rush skills are... are they're at the maximum level that they can be. And to me, he's just playing really high-level football. Yeah, and I think last night was one of those games that kind of epitomized his versatility. Yep. Uh, you saw him, as he always does at a very high level, set the edge in the run game. Uh, we saw him obviously rush the passer. Used as a spy. spy at times. Yep, we saw him spy Cam Newton. We saw him uh, downfield in man coverage against Jericho Cotri. On that was awesome. One. I mean, and he did that a couple times yeah. in the game that uh, obviously he wasn't targeted, but uh, running stride for si stride for stride with receivers and tight ends down the field. Just his versatility has just been so huge. Uh, we, we were talking earlier today, actually, on the on the Eagles Insider podcast. You had 10 different uh, guys get in on these turnovers, on these sacks, and none of them were Malcolm Jenkins. Obviously, D'Amico Ryans was out. It just shows you that there's wave after wave of guys that are getting in and making plays on this team. Yeah, and one thing, and you talked about it before we came on, that the Eagles played a lot of was two-man last night. That's right. And that's a great coverage to play against Carolina for this reason. And you might not see anywhere near as much this week against Green Bay after we talk about why they used it last night, is they were playing against a team that had receivers that struggle to win against man and a quarterback that's not a stick thrower with accuracy. He doesn't stick the ball into tight windows with accuracy. So it made perfect sense to play two-man, which is a great coverage anyway, but it really is even a better coverage in those situations without against receivers who can't win very well and with a quarterback who's not a stick thrower. So it was really a great job by Bill Davis understanding the nature of the opponent. 
And also the run game as well, because when you play two man, obviously you're playing with two high safeties. That's one less body you're going to have near the line of scrimmage to help in the run game. You're putting a lot of faith in that defensive front to hold up at the point of attack. And it also says they were not really that concerned about Cam Newton running. No. Because at this point, you know, which gets into a larger question, which we've discussed before, and I'm sure we'll come back to, hey, we may come back to when we talk about uh, Russell Wilson in Seattle in a few weeks. But... uh, Cam at this point is a beat-up quarterback, and they were really not concerned about him getting out of the pocket against man coverage and beating them with his legs. No, no question about it. Uh, you know, Obviously just a huge win for the Philadelphia Eagles now who uh, sit at the top of the NFC East, travel to Green Bay this week. Who Look, I mean, this, this game against Green Bay, I think it's the game of the week, obviously, but it could be one of those games that you look back at the end of the season and say, well, that kind of helped decide what the playoff picture looked like by year's end. Yeah, and obviously we, we mentioned the weather. It's probably it's certainly not going to be balmy, so it's going to be interesting to see how Mark Sanchez handles that situation. Uh, if the Eagles try to run the ball more, how how Chip Kelly puts together his offense, as we know, he doesn't miss anything, so he probably gets an up to the minute forecast. You know, starting now, so he'll know exactly how he wants to put together his game plan. Uh, you know, I think the Green Bay defense. It strikes me that that's a defense that would struggle with the Eagles' offense, and I'll tell you why. I think it's a very scheme-based defense, that Dom Capers does a lot of things, Fran, and I think it's hard to do a lot of things against the Eagles' offense. Especially with the tempo. Correct. So what makes them so good is the scheming, but I think they're just going to have to line up and play. And one of the things that I that occurred to me, and look, I— with the with the extra day, uh, I had all the day of Monday without an Eagles game to watch, so I spent a lot of time watching the Green Bay Packers. I watched all of their offense on Monday, good amount of their defense on Friday, so I, I've got a pretty good beat on this team, especially from a personnel standpoint. I think one of the issues with them defensively, tackling one-on-one in space, especially at the second level, their safeties, their corners, at times their linebackers as well, and the Eagles offense is one where you're going to have to make tackles one-on-one in space. Correct. That, that you're going to have to do that. Uh, and if it's one of those games where you know it's the, where the elements come into play and it's more of a run-based te- uh, game, you're going to have to be able to make those tackles one-on-one. It'll be interesting to see how that plays out. Yeah, it's funny you mention that because as, as much as I like Clinton Dix's movement, and, and I think he's for the most part done a pretty good job now starting, he misses a lot of tackles in Oof, space. Man, I mean, I watched that New Orleans game. He had to miss at least six tackles oh. in that game, I- at least. And, and then you watch him move and you go, I like the way he moves, but yeah. he's going to have to make those tackles. Yeah. Uh, we both, I know we both liked him last year yeah. coming out of Alabama. Uh, and obviously this is no, you know, we're half, half of a season into his rookie year. So by no means is he a, a bust or anything. No, no. Uh, just, you know, definitely and an issue for him. Early the on. one thing we saw on Sunday night, uh, when, uh, um, Green Bay played Chicago was in their sub package, which they played, I think on, on every snap, but one or two, yep. uh, they had Clay Matthews on the inside. Yes. Uh, which I actually think is a pretty good move because in watching the Packers' defense all year, they've gotten good play from Nick Perry, kind of a forgotten number one pick yep. from a few years ago, who's starting to play a lot more snaps over the last month and and has had some moments. I don't know if he's the dynamic pass rusher they had hoped when they took him, I think, at 28 or 29. Something like that out of USC. Yeah. Right, but, uh, but at least they get another pass rusher on the field, and Matthews becomes kind of a joker, a guy you move around, as a stand-up player behind the defensive line, and he becomes a tougher guy to have to block, and he's explosive. Yeah, I mean, I think it's one of those deals where you're trying to get your best 11 on the field. Uh, You get Sam Barrington, you had Jamari Lattimore, who were kind of rotating in there as the inside backer opposite A.J. Hawk. 
Neither of them, you know, they both have their their strengths and weaknesses. They're not pass rushers. They're though. not pass rushers. Uh, Barrington is kind of limited athletically, and Lattimore is very inconsistent as a tackler. So they're they're they've had their issues putting Clay Matthews inside. You know, he had 13 tackles, made plays right, in, right. inside the box, outside the numbers, was just all over the place. Had two sacks. One was a penalty, but. Uh, was very disruptive against Chicago. And it makes perfect sense because in watching the Packers' defense over the years under Dom Capers, very often in their sub-package, they would line Matthews up inside in a stand-up position and create blitz packages just for him anyway. So it kind of makes sense to put him there as as his normal position in the sub-package. Right, and th- this is a very much a sub-package team. You talked about yep. how they were in their sub-packages for most of the game against Chicago, but they liked getting on t- into situations where – Casey Hayward, the the third year nickel guy out of uh, Vanderbilt, can come on the field. Micah Hyde, who is a, a starter at safety, but also plays in in the slot. Sure, uh, plays. They at play a very dime high level. sometimes. Yeah, and, play a lot of dime. I, Hayward and, and Hyde, I think, have been their probably their most consistent defensive backs. Uh, you know, from from week to week so far this season. Yeah, and they do like to. Uh, and Sam Shields was back this week, and they do like to match him up at times on the best. Uh, uh, wide receiver, so it'll be interesting to see if he plays against Jeremy Macklin. I remember last year there he matched up against A.J. Green, did a very good job. He's matched up against good wide receivers. I know there's others. I, I'm just... Right. I think he matched up against Des Bryant as well last year when they played Dallas. So uh, he gets beat every once in a while, but that's the way they like to use him. Yeah, no question about it. And the one guy on that defense that I really, really enjoyed watching this year uh, from the area, actually, as well, uh, Mike Daniels, the defensive oh, tackle yeah. out of Iowa. Uh, just a really disruptive player, high-motor kid who playing at a very high level and is playing all over the line for them. Yeah, so I think, as I said, to, to drive home the point, I think it'll be interesting to see how Green Bay plays because obviously against the speed tempo, it's tough to do a lot of different things snap after snap. And it, Dom has always struck me as truly scheme-based. Back, going back to his days in Pittsburgh with Blitzburg and all those great concepts, which were kind of new at that time. Now everybody uses them. But uh, I, I think it could be a tough go. And again, depending on how weather affects the game, if it doesn't, I, I'd be anxious to see how Green Bay plays. Yeah, no question about it. And looking at the offensive side of the ball, I mean, we could we could have had a whole show a whole show on the on the Green Bay Packers offense. But really, just watching that team, it's a lot of simple concepts. And we talked about it when we were preparing for the New York Giants. It's a lot of simple, quick hitting concepts. You got double slant and curl flat and slant flat. A lot of these things that you'll see at every level of the game that they execute down after down after down. They have a number of plays that they build off of those simple concepts. And then what makes Aaron Rodgers Aaron Rodgers is his ability to make plays both inside and outside of structure. And he kind of bails himself out of some plays where, you know, yeah, he, he misses a throw early in the down and then makes up for it later and makes a play no outside question. the pocket. And I think that's in some ways the defining feature of Aaron Rodgers, which makes him, for, for me, both really enjoyable to watch and at times, in a sense, frustrating to watch because sometimes he'll drop back on a three-step or five-step and I feel like the throw is right there and I don't know what's in his head, but for whatever reason he doesn't throw it and it's it's like, Aaron, throw it. It's there. And then, of course, what happens is he moves around, four or five seconds go by, defensive structure breaks down and he hits Randall Cobb for 30 yards. <laughs> and, and, you know, it's tough to defend that because it is... It, it it's not so much outside of st- structure the way we think of quarterbacks that run right. that are outside of structure. It's just later in the down. So he's not a guy who flees the pocket. He's kind of a guy who navigates the pocket, yeah. sometimes with no rhyme or reason, and then all of a sudden he stops 
two feet from where he was and just drills a ball to a guy who's wide open, and you wonder, how did he do that? Well, that, that's what's interesting to me because I, I was actually talking to a friend of mine who, who is a coach, and I was just talking about Rodgers and saying, like, look, they make so many plays out of the scramble drill. And, you know, once a quarterback breaks the pocket, receivers that are downfield have certain rules that they right, have to follow right. in terms of, okay, if I'm running downfield, i got to get to the sideline. Now i got to get downfield. i got to work back to the quarterback. Depending on where they are on the field defines where they're supposed to go in terms of a scramble drill. But he's not outside the pocket. He's no, still he's in the pocket, right, and they're correct. just extending the play. Right. And it's a good job by them across the board of uncovering and getting open for him. But keep one thing in mind, and we know how Bill Davis plays on defense. He's not conservative. He won't be conservative this week. The later you get in the down as a quarterback, yes, there are positive plays to be made, but quarterbacks who go later in the down get sacked more. And there have been games in which Rodgers, over his career, has been sacked an awful lot. And sometimes they're on him. Sometimes, obviously, it's you know, there's many reasons why quarterbacks right. get sacked. But the later in the down you play consistently, and that's the way he plays, maybe more than any other quarterback, those guys tend to get sacked more, too. So I'll be very interested to see what Bill Davis dials up from a pressure standpoint against uh, Aaron Rodgers, and not just Aaron Rodgers, but this whole, this whole line for Green Bay. I would expect a wide variety of fronts, a wide yep. variety of blitzes and coverages and looks from the, from the Eagles' defense. And let's not forget that right now, obviously, coming off this performance, Aaron Rodgers is being held as the best quarterback in the NFL and the hottest player you know, in the league right now. Let's not forget, early in the year, people were asking those questions of what's wrong with Green Bay, what's wrong with Aaron Rodgers, Correct. the same way they're talking about Drew Brees right now. And it's funny you say that because it, it really plays off the conversation we just had because there is at times, I don't want to say a loss of structure, but it's a little bit outside of structure. As we've discussed many times, once you do that, it's not always positive. It's roll can, the dice. It can be negative. Yep. And if there, you can go a game or two where those plays just don't work out – and that's when people say, what's wrong? There's really nothing wrong. It's just the flip side of the same coin. Yeah, no question about it. Greg, I think that's going to do it for this week. It's, uh, listen, it's the end of we week We could have done this one for, uh, yeah, for three hours. We could have kept uh, going, but we both had a long night on Monday. Yep. We, we, we need some time to recover. Uh, maybe maybe me more so than you, maybe the other way around. I'm not exactly sure. I'm a little older than you, Fran. <laughs> but uh, listen, it's a, it's the end of week 11. College football this week, obviously we both caught uh, most of Alabama LSU. I told you this yesterday when, when we sat and watched the game together, the uh, the Eagles game. That's my favorite game to watch all year long. No question. Uh, Alabama LSU is my favorite game. You mean you don't want to just see the spread offenses toss it all around? No, I don't think so. I, I don't know if it's the... You know, if it's the venues, if it's the coaches, if it's the just the quality of NFL talent year in and year out, it's my it's my favorite game every year. Yeah, I really enjoyed watching it. I saw most of it, and there's just something about that game. Again, because I'm a little older, I, I I do remember the NFL when the NFL kind of played that way all the time, and there's just something I find very compelling about watching that kind of game. No question about it. And while we're on the topic of college football, let me get to my interview. I spoke earlier with NFL Draft Insider Tony Pauline from DraftInsider.net. Let me get to that interview with Tony. Joining me now on the Eagle Eye in the Sky podcast, you know him well from DraftInsider.net, the preeminent source for breaking news all year round when it comes to NFL draft coverage. My guy, Tony Pauline. Tony, what's happening, man? Thanks for having me back. No problem, absolutely. Well, Tony, it's that time of year again. The very first Senior Bowl participants were announced as invites went out last week around the country. We've talked in the past about possible quarterbacks that could be end up getting the call. One of them confirmed this week. That was Shane Carden out of East Carolina, one of the Cinderella teams earlier in the year this fall before they fell to my Temple Owls a couple weeks ago. 
Carden, 6'2", 220. He's thrown for 350 yards a game already this year. I talked with Dane Brugler a few weeks ago from CBS Sports. He thinks he could be like a Bruce Gradkowski-type player down the line. Is that the kind of role you see for this kid in the future? Yeah, possibly. I think it's more, you know, he gets an invitation more because it's such a poor quarterback class, uh, poor quarterback crop from the senior class. I mean, he's a nice quarterback. He plays in a system which I think really exaggerates his talent. Does a, he's a really sort of a game manager, does a great job commanding and controlling the offense, doesn't have a big-time arm. It's not a guy who's going to be good in a vertical offense, but you know, someone that at the senior bowl, you know, his arm strength I think will be exposed, especially in the one-on-ones. But you know, not a bad quarterback to kind of have on the sidelines as an extra pair of eyes. Well, Cardin's teammate at ECU is a bit more highly regarded, and that's wide receiver Justin Hardy, the slot guy for the Pirates. He's just about 5'10 and a half, just over 180 pounds. Through the first eight games of the year, this kid put up 814 yards and six touchdowns. What have you heard about his pro potential? Yeah, Hardy, I mean, he's been a good player for three years. It's not just this season. He's not a one-year wonder. If you watch him back as a sophomore, you could tell that he had the makings of a good NFL prospect. The problem for him is, you know, as you, as you said, he's not very big. As you listed his size, he's not very fast. He's just a smart receiver who is fundamentally sound, catches the ball away from his frame consistently, does the little things well. Uh, you know, his senior bowl uh, participation is going to be interesting because he's going to be going against some of the top senior quarterbacks. If he does well, that's going to boost his draft stock. As far as his next level ability, you know, the faster he runs, the earlier he's going to go. I don't think he's going to run that fast. I think he's right in that third-round area as a number three receiver uh, at the next level, but I think he's going to be a productive player. Just a real good football player who's not a great athlete and doesn't have the desirable measurables. Yeah, I'll be really interested to see where he ends up going because of those concerns athletically that you talked about. I mean, uh, guys in the past that have had those limitations at that size typically don't go too high, but he's had you know a ton of production throughout his career. It'll be really interesting to see. Uh, another name that's really buzzing right now in the college football landscape Utah pass rusher Nate Orchard, he's been super productive this year, 13 sacks, 15.5 TFLs for the Utes. What are scouts saying about this guy? Really going to be a 3-4 outside linebacker. If you watch that Michigan game, Utah used him a lot off the line of scrimmage in space. And, you know, it's one thing to be an undersized college pass rusher that comes out of a three-point stance, and it's just asked to make plays up the field. What Orchard is showing this year, besides the pass rushing prowess that he's had the past two seasons, is you know, he can play in space. You can drop him off the line of scrimmage, and he's not going to embarrass himself in coverage. And, you know, as you know from going to past senior bowls, that was Michael Sam's problem last year. Michael Sam was a great college pass rusher who, when they tried to use him at 3-4 outside linebacker at the senior bowl, really struggled, did not look comfortable. Orchard, during the college season, has looked comfortable dropping off the line of scrimmage, moving laterally, making plays in space. So, I think the better he does in that realm, he's a natural pass rusher. We know he's a natural pass rusher. But he doesn't have the size that you're going to line him up in a three-point stance. So the better he does making plays off the line, of, the line of scrimmage at the senior ball, I think the higher he's going to go or it's going to just enhance his draft grade. Another guy that will be in Mobile in a couple months with us, Tony, one of my favorite big men that I've watched this year, that's Iowa defensive tackle Carl Davis. I watched this kid against Pitt a few weeks back. Came away really, really impressed with his game. He's the left defensive tackle in that 4-3 scheme, really stout at the point of attack, suits that nose tackle spot really well for that team. He almost reminds me of a Michael Brockers-type player because he's got such long arms, just the way he's built. What have you heard about Davis and his draft stock? Yeah, not as big as Brockers, but I'll tell you, you're not the only one who loves him because as I wrote uh, a few weeks ago, 
I mean, this guy is soaring up draft boards. Most teams have him as an early second-round pick. I hear that there's one AFC West team that uh, projects him as a potential late first-rounder. You know, he's got the size. He's got the speed. He's a guy who has flashed ability throughout his college career. My problem with, uh, with, with Davis is, you know, just the consistency factor. I mean, at times he looks like a world beater. Other times he looks like an egg beater. He's, he's controlled at the point of attack by a single blocker. Really doesn't dominate on a down-in, down-out basis. And it's not because he's constantly being doubled and triple teamed on the inside. The guy can play, there's no doubt about it. And scouts really feel that he's the type of prospect that's going to be a much better pro player than he has been in college. So there's a lot of buzz around Davis. Filling out the list of acceptances this week, you've got two Penn State kids, the safety, Adrian Amos, linebacker Mike Hall. You've got a small school running back that a lot of people are high on, David Johnson out of Northern Iowa. Uh, one of the more highly regarded safeties in the country, Curtis Drummond out of Michigan State. We've talked about him in the past. Uh, Geno Grissom, the pass rusher out of Oklahoma, will be in attendance, as well as a safety out of Samford. I've heard a lot of good things about, but I've yet to watch him. That's Jaquiski Tart. Anything of note that we should know about of any of these guys? Well, I think Drummond is going to be the most interesting uh, case because, you know, he came in as the highest-rated senior safety, I think justifiably so, but his, his play has been up and down this year. He was terrible against Oregon, and then later on in the year he turns up. The big problem with Drummond is his, is his coverage skills, his man coverage skills. And as you know at the Senior Bowl, you know, they go through those drills where the safeties will be placed upon receivers in one-on-one drills. And that's going to tell a lot for Drummond if he's consistently beaten – not going to help him, but if he shows ball skills, you know, that's going to be one sort of uh, uh, fault in his game that if he can improve upon at the senior bowl, it's, going to really, it's really going to help him. All right, Tony, before I let you go, give me some juice here. Is there anything you can shed some light on that might be coming down the pipe? Any surprise senior bowl invites that we might see over the next week or so? Well, I heard that uh, Miami of Ohio cornerback Quinton Rollins is a guy who may get a, senior, uh, may get a senior bowl invite. It's interesting because he was not on any of the preseason scouting lists, but he's had a good senior season. You know, Phil Savage, the director, likes to throw those guys in there out of nowhere who he believes can be next-level prospects. Miami of Ohio's had an okay year. They, they aren't lighting the world on fire. But if Rollins gets an invite, I think that will be uh, kind of an eye-opener, and he's a guy who can make some money for himself at the, uh, at the senior bowl. You talked about David Johnson of Northern Iowa, who uh, who – is also building a buzz for himself in the, in the scouting community, will be at the Senior Bowl. Desmond Lewis, the six-foot-four uh, wide receiver from Central Arkansas, who a lot of scouts like, I hear he's also going to be there. And then from what I've heard, and, and I reported a couple of weeks ago, looks like they, Phil Savage may save two quarterback slots for Brett Humley and Marcus Mariota if they declare, because even though they're juniors eligibility-wise, they'll be on pace to receive their degrees. I don't think Mariota would go because he's going to be one of the top three players selected, if not the top player. Brett Humley, if he enters the draft, be interesting to see if he receives a senior bowling bite. It will be interesting to see if he shows up in Mobile. Tony Pauline, the man, the myth, the legend, the Led Zeppelin fanatic. I appreciate it, as always, joining us here on the Eagle Eye in the Sky podcast. Thanks for having me, Fran. All right, that's going to do it. Another week in the books here at the NovaCare Complex. I'm your host, Fran Duffy. Thanks for joining us once again on the Eagle Eye in the Sky football podcast. We'll see you next week.